Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Morning Harvest, it's good to be back in the pulpit again with you. You know, over the last three weeks, um, we did a deep dive into the topic of sin. And you've heard from each of the pastors on a different facet of what sin is. And the truth is, it's not anybody's favorite topic, but it's an important one. It's, it's one that as Christ followers, we can't just gloss over. We've got to take sin seriously. And one of the reasons it's important is because if we don't see how bad the bad news is, we can't really acknowledge how good the good news is. Pastor Tim Keller, formerly of Redeemer Church in New York, he says it this way. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I think that's a really good and succinct way of saying there's really bad news, but that's what makes the really good news so great. So here's a quick review of what we've been learning about sin over the last few weeks. We've learned that sin is missing the target. And what matters most about that is not so much the missing part, but defining what that target is. And the target that we're aiming for is not just keeping all the rules. But if you remember, the real target is that we would live as fruitful image bearers of God. And what that means is that we live in right relationship with God, with ourselves, with other people, and even with creation around us. And we have to remember that, that sin is more than just rule breaking. It's ultimately a mistrust of the rule giver that causes us to reject him. So before we ever violate the rules of God, something in our hearts rejects the right that God has to give us any rules at all. It's really sin is about a a loyalty and authority issue. It's not just about a moral issue. We also learned that iniquity is like a crookedness or a bentness of our nature. It's a perversion of what is right and what is wrong so that what God calls wrong, we call right. That's one of the the most fundamental levels of sin. It's called iniquity, and it's about this crookedness in who we are as people. We also learned last week that it's transgression. Sin is transgression, which is really uh, a violation of trust. It's breaking a trust or failing to give someone the goodness or kindness or concern which we owe them as fellow human beings. It's also a betrayal of God. It's open rebellion against a God who has loved us and we have decided to rebel against him. So that's a relational or personal betrayal. In 1996, a year after we started Harvest, I read a book, and I found it to be one of the most helpful books on the topic of sin that I've ever, I've ever read. It was called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be by Cornelius Plantinga Jr. And he builds the whole book around this idea of shalom. And he defines shalom. It's, it's a word that, you know, if, if you know any Hebrew at all, it's, um, it's really a word we commonly translate as peace. But he defines shalom this way. It's the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Put a, a more simple way, it's the way things ought to be. I think that's a really good, simple way of talking about what shalom should be. So the problem with sin is that sin shatters the shalom. It breaks everything so that rather than things being the way they ought to be, 
Sin is a way of saying nothing is the way it's supposed to be. You know, I should be able to walk out of my house and not lock the front door in fear that someone will come and take what doesn't belong to them. I should be able to release my children into the world, not fearful that someone will do them harm. You know, I should be able to lose my wallet on the sidewalk and still expect to find it in the same place the following day. But nothing is the way it's supposed to be because sin shatters relationships. Plantinga summarizes it really well in this way. He says, Shalom is God's design for creation and redemption. And listen to this. Sin is blamable human vandalism of these great realities and therefore an affront to the architect and builder. It's as if what what God is saying about sin is, I made this world perfect. And as soon as the paint had dried, someone came and just sprayed disgusting graffiti all over it. It's vandalism of the thing that God created to be so perfect, so good. The way he made everything was designed to work together in harmony. And sin breaks that design of God. It shatters his image that is woven into us and into all of creation. So God sends a great flood, and you know this story with Noah. He sends this great flood, and mainly it was to demonstrate for all humanity once, just once he did this, to say, this is how serious the problem of sin is. It's not something to shrug off. It's not something that could be dealt with with just waving of a hand. And yet, as soon as the waters subside, I mean, talk about one of the most devastating events, a near extinction level event, And yet, as soon as the waters subside and Noah and his family get off the boat, within that first day, they're already right back at sinning. It's as if sin is hardwired into the human spirit. And no matter what kind of shocks we endure, what kind of lessons we're given, it's as if we cannot help ourselves. There's something deep in our nature that makes us sin as soon as the scare is gone. As soon as we dodge that last bullet, we're ready to aim the next one right at our own heads. That's just something about human nature. And it can't just be ignored. It creates so much disruption in the world and in relationships that something has to be done about it. God instituted animal sacrifice in ancient Israel, and it was meant to be a powerful symbol of the way all of this works. The animal is killed, and as its blood is spilled, That life leaks out of that animal. It's a reminder to us of the high cost of sin. How serious a problem it really is. But then after the animal is killed, the priest takes some of the blood and with his hands he sprinkles it on the altar, on the people, on the veil that covers the Holy of Holies. In other words, as he's sprinkling the blood all over the place, it's a symbol of cleansing. So that not only does the the blood remind us of the cost of sin, but it also reminds us that God's desire is not to leave the stain there, but he wants to cleanse what he has made. It's supposed to be a really powerful symbol of what sin and redemption or atonement looks like. The problem is that it's just a symbol. It wasn't powerful enough to take care of the actual problem. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10 verses 1 to 4. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, 
for the worshippers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. Listen to this, verse 4. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You know, the writer of Hebrews is making it clear that the sacrifice of animals was a symbol. It was meant to portray something, to remind us of something. But that blood of those animals was not enough to erase the problem that sin creates in God's world. That would require a much greater sacrifice. And in the next few verses, the writer of Hebrews reveals for us that it's a sacrifice which Jesus knowingly came to give. He made it willingly. Here's what 5 to 7 says. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you do not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You are not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the scriptures. That's Jesus' testimony about his own mission. Is he, had, he was given a body to offer, and he was coming willingly and obediently to offer that perfect life, that perfect body, as an acceptable sacrifice. Because the blood of, of bulls and goats was not enough to deal with the problem of sin. If you ever watched that movie, The Passion of the Christ, you know that the sacrifice which Jesus made involved a very violent and gruesome death. Yet it wasn't through the it was not through the violence that God took care of the problem of sin. Violence was involved, but the real power of the cross was not the violence of the death. It was the fact that God's love and mercy were so perfectly captured in the fact that in the moment that all the guilt, the darkness, the sin of the world and all the evil that was ever committed and would ever be committed was heaped on the Son of God. And in that moment, God forgave humanity through his son. It wasn't violence that, that brought victory over sin. It was forgiveness that accomplished what violence could not. That's why Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says this in chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Sin does violence to relationships. And we all know this is true because everyone who's ever sinned against us has damaged our relationship with them. And it's the same thing when we sin against others. But vengeance and violence cannot open a way forward for that relationship to continue. You know this. If someone's ever sinned against you and you took the path of vengeance and violence, you might feel better for a second, but there's no way that the relationship can continue. What Jesus did instead is he used the path of forgiveness and mercy so that even after an offense is committed in a relationship, he opens a way forward for the relationship to be rescued. That's really what redemption's all about. In Romans 3.12, Paul writes this, All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
when Paul refers to worthless there, and by the way, that's just him quoting Psalm 14.3. And when he says all have become worthless, what he's saying is sin doesn't just make us guilty, it makes us worthless. And that word worthless isn't just a derogatory term. It's not just slang for like, God hates us. No, it's literal. It's a technical term that says, it means in both the Hebrew and the Greek, it means to make something useless or to render it unserviceable. It's, it's like if you were at the gym and you dropped a heavy weight on your iPhone and shattered it. It might still have some modest, modest monetary value. I've seen on eBay broken, non-functioning phones being sold for 20 bucks. So it has some value, but as a phone, as a tool, it's now rendered worthless functionally. It cannot do what it was designed to do. And that's what sin does to us because we were image bearers of God, but who wants to try to see the image of God in someone who is putrid with sin and rebellion and evil? Sin mars, it eclipses the image of God that's supposed to radiate through our lives. It makes us ineffective in the world to to point everyone to see God. It makes us unable to see Him clearly. And so sin doesn't just make us guilty. It makes us worthless. And that's where the power of this idea of redemption comes in. In Titus 2.14, Paul writes this, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. You know that word redeemed in plain English What it means is to recapture or reclaim the value or usefulness of something. And what he's saying here is that since sin keeps us from being fully image bearers of God and living out that calling, it it makes us worthless in that regard. And by redeeming us, he's reclaiming God's ability to use us this way, to restore to us our original mission and calling. That was the target, right? Was to be image bearers of God, living in right relationship with God, with ourselves, with other people, even with the world and creation all around us. And by by forgiving us and making a way forward, He redeems our ability to be what we were supposed to be. It's not just releasing us from guilt. It's reclaiming us for Himself. That's really what redeeming is about. And if you've ever had bed bugs, I haven't had bed bugs in our house, but if you've ever had that horror, my friends who've had that problem have told me, it's just the worst thing. You feel so gross about it, and they get everywhere, and it's almost tempting to just burn your house down, just sell it and move out, because you just feel like you're never going to get rid of that problem. But a good pest control specialist can come into your house, fog the whole thing, bomb it, and after they've done their, their work, They can actually get into the nooks and crannies, rid your house of that infestation. When you have bed bugs, it's as if your whole house is lost to you. You still own it, you still live there, but you don't want to be there. You can't comfortably go into any room, lie on any surface. But when the exterminator comes and takes care of the infestation, it's like you get your house back. It redeems the usefulness of a thing that once belonged to you, but was not useful to you, and it reclaims its value. When we put our faith in Jesus, He forgives us once for all time. I don't want us to live under this impression that our salvation is such a fragile thing that if I sin, then I'm not going to heaven, that kind of thing. This idea of like the fragility of our salvation 
we need to get rid of once and for all. When we are saved in Jesus, he does save us once for all time. But that doesn't mean that we stop sinning after we become Christians. Paul makes clear in Romans 8.1 that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So it's not an issue whether we will be with God forever or we will not. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. And yet, we continue to sin even after becoming Christians. And we have to remember that unconfessed sin does take a toll. Psalm 32.3 records a, a testimony of David when he had not confessed his sin and the effect it had on him, because unconfessed sin damages the soul. Here's what David says. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. If you want to read a more detailed version of that same kind of confession, take a look at Psalm 38. He's so explicit in the way he talks about how this weight of guilt and unconfessed sin bore down on him and it started creating physical problems even for him. It's like plaque on our teeth, isn't it? It's a, a, a decay, it's a kind of damage that is so slow, so cumulative and gradual, you don't always see the problem right away. If I stop brushing my teeth for the next 30 days, other than the horrific breath, I'm not going to feel right away like my teeth are so damaged. You know, that kind of decay is so slow and gradual, it doesn't always alarm you or shock you, but then one day you will bite down on something and you will have the sharpest pain in your tooth. And you realize that over all those days of neglecting the problem, serious damage was being done to your teeth. That's why we brush every day, right? Because this kind of cleansing and renewal is required on a regular basis. You can't not brush your teeth for 30 days and then brush your teeth for an hour straight and hope that that takes care of the problem. It doesn't work that way, does it? I wish it did. That'd be so efficient. But we have to brush every day because that decay settling into us causes slow and gradual and serious damage. Some of that damage is permanent. I've got teeth that aren't real teeth. They are made out of man-made substances because I let that damage go unchecked and I lost that tooth. In the same way, the confession of our sins before God has to be a regular, even daily practice for us. And, and we do this on a regular basis for a couple of reasons. One is because it's important for us to receive the forgiveness and cleansing that comes when we bring our guilt before God and say, I own what I did and I, I want to be restored. I want to be forgiven and cleansed. And so just like brushing your teeth cleans your teeth, Really going to God in honesty and saying, I have sinned, please forgive me. It produces a renewal or cleansing in us that is really important for ongoing spiritual life and vitality. But there's another reason we do it is because every time we confess our sins and receive that assurance of forgiveness, it is a very important reminder to us about the heart and nature of the God that we worship. It's a reminder that the God that we worship doesn't hate us isn't gloating over our imperfections and weakness, but He loves us. He wants to restore us. And when we don't confess our sins, when we hide away from Him, when we're in denial of our guilt, what it ends up doing is it causes us to keep living those days of our lives separate, out of relationship with God, avoiding Him, not going to Him. And that's the real damage of unconfessed sin, is not that you're carrying the burden of guilt around with you, 
but that it drives you apart from God so that you spend all those days forsaking the intimacy with Him that you could have. Especially if you suppose that by confessing, He's going to come and crush you or condemn you. He won't do that. And each time we confess our sins, fully acknowledge how dark and depraved we can be. And then we experience this beautiful, um, enthusiastic release, forgiveness from God. We're reminded just what He's like. How good a God He really is. So we should seek redemption on a regular basis because God has paid a great price to make that available to us. And if that's the way we benefit from knowing God and, and taking part of His redemption, then we also have to learn that we've got to offer redemption. You know, when someone sinned against us, we have a very important decision to make. And you can think of it as like a fork in the road. There's two paths you can take when someone sins against you. One path is the path of retribution or revenge. And the other is a path of reconciliation, restoration. I know that seems self-evident, but I want you to think about how many times in your life you stood at that fork in the road. I've put up a slide just so, so you can see a visual. That's a choice you make every time someone offends you or does wrong against you. And the question is, which of those paths do you consistently take? One of those paths will soothe your wounded spirit for a moment. It will feel like justice. It will feel like vindication to crush the one who has crushed you. But remember that that's not the way to make a way forward. See, God could have demanded justice from us without mercy. He could have told us, you're the one who sinned, you pay the price. And in trying to pay that price, we would have been utterly destroyed. But God was more interested in winning us than winning his case against us. He wasn't interested in condemning us and proving to us that we were guilty. He was interested in doing that so that we could be restored to Him. Because what He really wants is not to be proven right, but to redeem people that He created for a purpose, people that He loves. There's a little mystery which of the forks in that road you're supposed to take. 1 John 4, 9-11 says this, and we'll, we'll bring it to a close soon. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us, we ought to love one another. Remember what I said earlier, that God could have demanded justice without mercy, but in trying to get it from us, we would have been destroyed in the process. Instead, He chose to fight for us, not against us. He was more interested in winning us back than winning His argument against us. Can we do any less when someone has offended us or done wrong against us? I'll close just by leaving you with the powerful words that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 13. Let these words wash over you. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, 
clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. From this point forward, as we leave worship and go resuming our lives, we're going to sin against people. And people will surely sin against us. And we'll come to that fork in the road again and again and again. And when you face that fork and that decision, do it the way that God did it for you. Don't demand justice without mercy. Don't fight to be vindicated or proven right. But fight for the relationship. Sin against you hurts because you actually want to have a relationship with that person. The offense of a stranger can hardly bother us, but when a friend betrays us, it really wounds, it stings. And the sting is a reminder that what we really want is not justice and retribution, but we want to be restored to one another. And only the pathway of forgiveness and mercy, the atonement which Jesus makes available for us, offered freely to others as well, can make that way forward. It's not easy to do, which is why we have to go to God daily and remember we are the ones who most benefit from that kind of mercy. He releases us every day, many, many times over, so that we can remember the heart of God and live just like Him. I pray that God will help us to do that this week, to even give us opportunities right away even today to put this into practice and learn how to live in the atoning, redeeming work of Jesus for us. Sin is a reality in this broken world. And as the video taught us, for God to get rid of evil in the world, He'd have to get rid of us. But God loved us so much that He came up with a better way. He loved us so much that He gave His only Son so that He would pay the penalty and we could enjoy the freedom. This is the atoning work of Jesus. It was self-giving, sacrificial love. And by it, we are made clean and a path is open to us to be restored to God. Take advantage of this incredibly costly gift which God has made possible for us. Don't hold the weight of your guilt day by day being estranged from God. Go to Him. Be honest about your frailty, your weakness, your sin, and receive the forgiveness and the freedom and the restoration of relationship which He wants to lavish on you. And as others sin against you, may you be able to do likewise because the powerful work of Jesus is flowing through you every day. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, be blessed now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.